Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, David Crowe. Joining me in the studio today are Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent, Jonathan Guthrie, editor of Lex. And down the line from Frankfurt, we're joined by our bureau chief there, Claire Jones. She's been interviewing our guests this week, Andrea Enria, chair of the European Central Bank's single supervisory mechanism. And Laura Noonan, our US banking editor, joins us from across the pond by phone from New York. This week we'll be discussing what the ECB thinks about the creation of national banking champions, the prospects of creating such a champion in Germany by combining Deutsche Bank and Commerzbank, the $43 billion takeover of WorldPay, the payments giant, and attempts by Goldman Sachs to boost the number of women in its senior ranks. First up to Frankfurt and that interview with Andrea Onria, the Eurozone's top financial supervisor. Claire Jones, our Frankfurt bureau chief, recently interviewed him. And she started off by asking how he intended to turn the five-year-old single supervisory mechanism into a more mature organisation. At the European level, when you start something, when there is a lack of, you know, also trust, you move from different uh, starting points, the way in which you achieve, you bring everything under a common umbrella is by writing no? on paper how to do things. So it is naturally a bit rule-based. The more you move towards a mature organization, the more you can let supervisors to exercise their judgment no? on mm. the basis of the specific situation on each and every bank. And the last one, as I mentioned also, is, uh, is this issue of transparency. No? I mean, yeah. you need to come to a situation in which uh, uh, everybody out there uh, understands well what you are doing, is able to predict what you will be doing, and uh, you give sufficient visibility also to market participants, to investors, to analysts on uh, uh, where the banks are with respect to what, where you want them to be. If we tick these boxes, I think that, let's say, I would lead my organization to my successor in a much more stable, business-as-usual place. Mr. Nria then explained how the European banking system was still organised along national lines and why this was a problem. With a market which remains, uh, to a large extent, fragmented, especially along national lines, you have a, a difficulty. I mean, the, the financial market does not help in uh, absorbing shocks that hit one part of the system. No? That's why Capital Market Union and Banking Union were conceived in the first place. Not that if you have a shock hitting a specific member state or a region of mm. the area, you would have the system that helps spreading this shock and absorbing it better. At the moment, the banking sector is not a shock absorber, it is actually a shock amplifier. And in comments that are sure to have raised an eyebrow in Berlin, Mr. Onria warned against the creation of national banking champions. It's undeniable that European banks at the moment are not perceived by the market as uh, particularly 
strong and profitable. I mean, if you look at the market valuations and the price to book values, I mean, they, this is the judgment of the markets that uh, the current profitability and perspective profitability of European banks is uh, low at the moment. This is no surprise. I mean, in Europe, we had a second wave of the crisis. No, after the post-Lehman crisis, we had the sovereign debt crisis that uh, has left a, a major legacy in terms of uh, heavy recession and uh, deterioration of asset quality throughout the continent. So the adjustment process is, of course, still being completed. Having said that, I don't particularly like the idea of uh, champions, no, of national champions, of European champions. I mean, I think that especially when you are a supervisor, you shouldn't promote any particular structural outcome. And actually, you want to have a market which is open. So if there are foreign banks, foreign investors bringing their expertise, their capital in your jurisdiction, that should be welcomed. Of course, as a supervisor, I care if I see European banks which are not seen as attractive investment proposition for investors, I think that's a problem. And I think that until this changes, I think that we cannot say that the post-crisis adjustment process is completed. Now we're joined by Claire in Frankfurt. Claire, it's hard not to see Mr. Enria's comments as anything other than a thinly veiled criticism of the German government's attempts to combine Deutsche and Commerzbank. Is that a fair reading? I think the point that Enria was very clearly trying to make was that he will not be swayed at all by political pressure. He didn't refer to this merger in particular just because the ECB does not like to comment on individual institutions. But he was very frank in saying that when the ECB's supervisory arm is reviewing any sort of merger, what they pay attention to is the business case and the business case alone. So what can the SSM do, if anything, to frustrate a Deutsche Commerzbank merger? I think that's a very good question because it's not exactly clear who will have the final say on this, whether or not it will be the SSM or whether it's an issue of national law where the power will lie with the German authorities. But what they will have a big role in doing is reviewing the business case and whether or not the new organization is going to be able to meet regulatory requirements in the medium term. Mr. Enria in the interview was very clear in saying that there are globally agreed rules that the SSM would apply to institutions that are considered too big and too interconnected to fail. So in that instance, it is clear that the SSM would be looking at whether or not this combined institution, this merged institution, would be subject to higher capital requirements. And this gets to the heart of the SSM's problem, does it not? And Mr. Enria touched on this in your interview. It's never clear really who's in charge, is it? Who's the boss? Is it the national regulator or national political establishment or is it the SSM? Well, I think that's a very good point and it's something that I think people will be watching very closely over the merger processes, just what sort of noises we get from Frankfurt relative to the noises we get from Berlin and from Bonn, where the German regulator, Baffin, is based. And moving from Germany more broadly to the Eurozone, a lot of hand-wringing in the Eurozone right now over the growing hegemony of US investment banks. What did Mr. Enria have to say about the idea of some kind of pan-European investment bank? Overall, 
all the sense from speaking to Mr. Inria was that he wants to make the SSM a lot more of an open and transparent institution. But in terms of the European banking picture, he was frank in saying that it's not good as far as the supervisor is concerned if European banks are not an attractive proposition to investors. Clearly, that's something which they don't like. However, Mr. Enria's stance was that just because this is the case, you shouldn't go about trying to create national or regional champions to compete with US and Asian rivals. In fact, he went so far as to say that this competition from global rivals within the European financial space should be welcomed as a good thing for consumers of financial services. Well, Claire, a fascinating and candid interview. Thanks very much. Now, to discuss that Deutsche Commerzbank merger, we've got Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent here in the studio. So, Stephen, it's official. The talks are on. What's the latest? Well, after years of speculation, which has really intensified in the last few months, they finally actually entered formal discussions. So we don't actually know what the structure of the deal will be yet, but we're getting kind of a better idea of what type of things they might be looking at. There's certainly been a lot of investor pressure on Deutsche, and we're hearing increasingly from the Commerce Bank side to really shrink back down their investment bank even more, especially in the US, which would then have lots of other knock-on effects as reducing their funding costs, reducing the perceived riskiness of the group overall, while adding Commerce Bank's more stable retail deposits would help Deutsche, or whatever the larger bank is called, fund itself at a much cheaper rate. This is obviously a big priority for both banks at the moment, who just saw the ECB reaffirm that interest rates are going to be lower for longer and say that the banking system still needs support in the form of these super cheap loans to ensure that credit keeps flowing to the small companies in the economy. So after a long rumoured courtship, they finally seem to be getting together. And one can only imagine that this will actually go ahead now. We're reporting that a lot of investors are finally coming round. Even if they don't love the idea, they're coming to accept it as an inevitability now and are going to try and engage and make the best of it. So it promises to be an interesting few months once both negotiating teams sit down and try and hammer out you know, how to create the second largest bank in the Eurozone. And so incredibly likely, we think, but not a fait accompli, right? What are the potential roadblocks that could still stop this from happening? Well, if this merger was easy, totally made sense and was beneficial for both sides, I guess it would have happened a long time ago. There are lots of roadblocks here. One, as we reported a couple of weeks ago, is that regulators do not have confidence that either management team can actually execute a successful merger. They're they're worried that they'll bungle it, just as Deutsche Bank did, trying to integrate a retail bank, Postbank. It bought a decade ago. And when Commerce Bank bought Dresdner, the investment bank, both of those were not unmitigated, but pretty huge disasters in terms of value destruction and distraction of management. There are also concerns among analysts that tens of billions more capital may be needed. They may need to raise that to support the deal. Estimates range from 3 billion at the lower end right up into 16, 17 billion euros, which is Deutsche Bank's entire market cap. Now, you have to remember that these two German banks collectively have raised 30 billion euros of fresh equity in the last 11 years. So shareholders, not only are they a bit fed up of being asked for more cash, they would see themselves be even further diluted as these banks try and raise money to support the deal. Additionally, Commerce Bank doesn't really help with Deutsche's major problem, which is that it doesn't have a functioning profitable investment bank. The entire group made a 0.5% return on equity last year at Deutsche. 
the investment bank made a pretty hefty loss, which got worse in the fourth quarter. So they're going in the wrong direction. So aside from helping slightly with the funding costs, adding Commerce Bank and Deutsche together doesn't solve the investment banking equation. And they still also only have about a tenth of the German retail banking market. So it's not like they're creating something akin to the same market share as a Lloyd's or a Barclays or a HSBC in the UK, which are really dominated by five big lenders. The German banking model is much more diffuse and much less profitable, as a lot of them are run by the state, which have no obligations to make shareholder returns. Well, a long and difficult road ahead. Stephen, thank you. Now, most of our listeners will have heard of WorldPay, the payments giant, but fewer will have heard of FIS, the US company that this week announced plans to buy WorldPay for $43 billion. We're joined by Jonathan Guthrie, our Lex editor, to discuss the merits of the deal. So, Jonathan, I think I'm right in saying that RBS sold this business to private equity for about £2 billion in 2011. How is it that FIS is paying so much more less than a decade later? Well, I think you could argue that RBS dropped the ball a little on this one. It's true to say that quite a lot has been added onto WorldPay since 2011. For a start, Bain and Advent, who bought the business made some investments of their own. They put about $700 billion in. And then, of course, the business that we see now is actually really Vantive, which was a US payments business that bought WorldPay off the market in the UK where it had been listed. So it's a bit of a roll-up. I and mean, you're seeing roll-ups of roll-ups here. Even so, I think it's fair to say that large banks have missed a trick in terms of the amount of value that was locked up inside their payments divisions. And so RBS let the golden goose get away. But what is the rationale for FIS? Does scale really matter so much in the payments industry? I think it does, because it seems to me that these services, however they cut it and whatever they talk about adding value in investor presentations, is really a scale business. It's a commodity business where the more transactions you can process at increasingly low cost, the more competitive you're going to be and you're really just going to squeeze other competitors out of the market. And an enterprise value of $43 billion, a huge amount of money, does the deal get the Lex mark of approval? I think it does. I mean, we don't think that it's a hugely expensive deal for FIS. The premium is about, I think, 14%, something like that. That's not huge for a change of control. We'd usually see 20 to 30% as being more typical. It doesn't look as if it's going to stretch FIS's balance sheet hugely. It's a company with quite decent balance sheet. Net debt to EBITDA is going to shrink from about 3.5 to 2.7 times over a few years. We think it's a good one for them and probably one they had to do as well because there is simply a land grab going on in world payments. Well, with a land grab, I expect we'll see a lot more of this. Jonathan, thank you. Thank you. And finally, we're joined by Laura Noonan, our US banking editor from New York. Laura, Goldman announced some new policies this week aimed at tackling a dearth of women in senior roles. This is an issue that plagues the entire banking industry, but how does Goldman plan to solve it? So what Goma are doing now is they're trying to ensure that they get a better balance of men and women at the most junior level. So previously they had said that they would ensure that when they recruit people directly out of university, they would have half men, half women. And now they're saying they're going to expand that 50-50 rule to all analysts and all entry-level associates, even those who are hired from other firms. 
So what they're looking to do essentially is to make sure that the intake is 50-50 and the hope is that if they hire an equal number of men and women at the entry level, then ultimately they will all stay and they will end up with a more even split at the higher levels because at the moment only about a fifth of Goldman's most senior people are actually female. So they hope that if they manage to keep that talent on board from the entry level right up to the partner level, then there will be a more even split. Will this really move the needle? Because I think there's some evidence showing that even if you get 50-50 at entry level, that more women leave over time. Yeah, there's quite a lot of evidence showing that the real issue banks have in terms of retaining women. Goldman and other firms are doing work around this as well, but it's very challenging because you have issues around work-life balance, particularly as women get to the age of having children. I don't think any firm or any society has really managed to crack it so that it's as easy for a woman to carry on with their career when they have children as it is for men. So I think everyone's base case is that more women than men are going to drop out as they go up the career ladder. So that then leads you to the, should you actually be hiring 60% female at the intake level, because then you might get a more even split by the time you get up to the mid and more senior ranks. I haven't seen any firm go down that route yet. And I think you might get a lot of protests from men at the entry level if you were to do that. But certainly I would say it's very hard to see how any bank or any company could put in place policies to actually guarantee that you would have the same level of attrition from men and from women as they make their way up the ranks. Well, obviously in politics, we've seen all women shortlists, but I doubt we'll be seeing the banking industry adopting anything like that anytime soon. Laura, thank you for joining us. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Claire, Stephen, Jonathan and Laura, and of course our guest, Andrea Unria, and to thank you too for listening. If you're not already an FT subscriber, do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com forward slash offer. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com forward slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.